and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. I'm your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are pleased to welcome today two expert faculty members, Dr. Michael Angaroni, Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. And also joining Hello, us everyone. is Dr. Chuck. Hi, Dr. Angaroni. And joining us also is Dr. Chuck Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Irvine, Department of Family Medicine. Dr. Vega, thank you for joining. It's absolutely my pleasure. And this educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, and Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the cleaning committee members and faculty presenters. Please note that the, the material presented in this program is current as of today, May 19th. Uh, for the most up-to-date guidance, if you're watching on demand, um, please do review the NIH and IDSA treatment guidelines. Today's learning objectives are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID requiring hospitalization, to evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, explain the mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments, and describe best practices for managing patients with COVID-19 with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. Um, I will now turn the presentation over to our faculty. So Dr. Vega, thank you again for your time. Oh yeah, it's my pleasure. And thank you for the great introduction, Faith. And, um, and I may ask you to pinch hit for me when it comes to pronouncing some of those monoclonal antibodies. <laughs> we, we all love that, uh, especially in front of people. Uh, so um, this is a great opportunity to talk about COVID-19. Uh, we're seeing a big change in the pandemic in the United States. We're seeing a change in the way we're responding to it. Um, but one thing became clear, and Michael and I were actually discussing this uh, a little bit, just how you know we look back 15 months ago and uh, pretty much every patient that I was seeing with COVID-19 was going into the hospital because we didn't know what we were dealing with. It was uh, tremendously scary. We were worried about um, you know, not just uh, that individual patient, but also the public health consequence of having these cases. We weren't sure how uh, far spread this, uh, uh, this infection would go and it became a pandemic, um, you know, really, really sad. Um, but um, as we grew more experienced with this illness, we found that most patients, in fact, about four out of five could be managed as outpatients. They have more mild to moderate illness. And that's really been where I've done the most of my work. We, you know, in my regular clinic, we also had special post-COVID clinics uh, set up. And so um, we were busy taking care of patients who didn't need to enter the hospital in the first place, but also post-hospital follow-up patients as well. So it does, I think it is something to bear in mind that most patients are, are managed in the outpatient sector. And this is a really nice graphic that I think ties together the virology of COVID-19 as well as the symptomatology. And then finally, it even includes where therapeutics are considered to be most useful. So you can see that, unfortunately, that concentration of SARS-CoV-2 rises um, and becomes highest right before symptoms develop, which is uh, so insidious in the way this infection can spread that you get a lot of uh, spread from people who are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, but then in that first week, there's the fever, cough, myalgia. I I've seen a lot of different cases of COVID-19 now, and certainly there is no one template. Uh, you see one case and you've seen one case, but we've always been concerned about folks doing worse in the second week where they get that severe inflammation, that cytokine storm can develop, uh, leading to a lot of respiratory distress, and that's what pe puts people in the hospital. 
When it comes to therapeutics, it's really ideal to start our antiviral agents as soon as possible, just like any infection. The sooner you get on board, the sooner the more likely it is to work, certainly with antivirals. And convalescent plasma can be considered in that same range as well. Where we see the application of our immunomodulator drugs is more when inflammation really sets in, particularly that outsized inflammation we get after the initial period of infection where patients might be doing okay and might be resting comfortably at home um, before they uh, develop that cytokine storm and, and severe inflammation develops. So what are the risk factors for severe illness? This is something I'm always calculating and something that's constantly changing as well as we get more information about COVID-19, uh, the risk factors have changed. I'm not gonna call out all of the factors that are uh, on this uh, busy slide, but I will say that uh, in a meta-analysis, COPD stood out as one of the uh, factors that was that was associated with the highest risk comparatively uh, compared with other um, uh, major risk factors. Also more has come out lately on uh, diabetes as a major risk factor. Now it's established both type one and type two diabetes are both significant risk factors. Obesity is a significant risk factor uh, for uh, severe COVID-19 as well. And you would think that if you have somebody with obesity and type two diabetes, those would be additive um, because that's certainly something we see that more of these risk factors you have, and I have a lot of patients with chronic kidney disease and COPD and obesity and diabetes, the higher your risk goes, they're, they're generally synergistic, unfortunately, in promoting worse disease. But with obesity and diabetes, there was a study that showed that they were actually quite separate and they weren't synergistic, which is you know, at least one good thing. And there's, there, this information is always evolving. And so therefore it's something I take into perspective. And so when I'm seeing a patient, I'm accounting for these factors and um, and not just that, the, the accumulation of factors. And that's gonna make uh, my decision as to, you know, whether they might qualify for monoclonal antibody treatment and also sometimes whether they should be going to the emergency room or being admitted to the hospital directly. One other major risk factor that I can't ignore is the fact that uh, this uh, pandemic has greatly affected uh, Latinx, um, Black communities, and American Indian Alaska Native communities uh, far worse, both in terms of the incidence of COVID-19 and severity for hospitalizations and even mortality. Uh, so uh, I think it deserves special attention uh, for providers who see a lot of these patients and they know the toll it's taken in these communities. Um, and I think that right now the imperative is to get as much vaccination to uh, communities of color in the United States as is possible. Um, that will be the best way to fight this uh, infection and this pandemic moving forward. Let's talk about a case just to frame this up for ourselves. Um, Mr. Beals is 52 years old. He's a male, he's presenting to your clinic. He has hypertension. He's also an active smoker, 30 pack year history. He has had myalgia and cough for 24 hours. So he tests for COVID-19 and it's positive by RT-PCR testing. So, you know, Michael, I, I guess the, the question now is, what can you offer this guy? Seems like he has some risk factors because he's over 50, he's got hypertension and a smoker. What do you think? Yeah, so this is a great question, uh, great question, Chuck, because this is what we want. We want patients who are going to present fairly early outpatient mild uh, disease and prevent them from getting sicker and potentially prevent them from spreading the infection. Um, and you're going to talk about in a minute some of those treatments that we have in the outpatient. Um, and a lot of what we've focused on are people with risk factors, especially risk factors um, that put them at high risk for developing severe COVID. And he has some of those, 
Um, the smoking obviously is something that we worry about, the hypertension, um, does he have COPD from the smoking? Um, and I know you're gonna talk to us more detail about the treatments, but this is the type of patient that you would wanna assess and wanna try to get treatment um, as soon as possible if he's in the outpatient setting um, uh, to try to get him treated. And, and we know that monoclonal antibodies are effective. I'll speak to that in a minute. I think the, the difficulty in applying uh, these uh, agents has been in the logistics of getting them on board, of finding a center where you can do infusions, where they can monitor patients for severe reactions, because that has to be part of the protocol. Uh, it's very important. And as we've gotten more experience, I think we've uh, really streamlined those logistics quite a lot. Uh, in terms of you know his characteristics, he's on the borderline of qualifying, but use your judgment. I think that um, I find that sometimes I've had a few patients where they didn't meet you know, that one single characteristic that, uh, that said they should be uh, sent for monoclonal antibodies, but they had several characteristics that were, uh, that were very close. Um, and so therefore, um, use your judgment. How, you know, how is he, are they showing up early in the course of the disease versus day nine or day eight? Um, and you know, what's the, their accumulated risk Look at the, the whole patient in front of you. And I think that's been something of a guide. Um, whereas I usually find I stick to uh, what our protocols are. Sometimes I made an argument for a case where it's just like, gosh, this seems like a person who would really benefit. Um, and I, I think that uh, that's been to the patient's benefit as well to do that advocacy. So let's think about treatments and, and we'll focus on the ambulatory patients. So no matter what this gentleman uh, you know, gets at the end of the day, we're going to do close monitoring of his symptoms having a reliable uh, thermometer at home, emphasis on reliable, and emphasis on thermometer because I've been surprised how many households don't have thermometers these days. Makes it very difficult to clear somebody when they say, yeah, I'm having, I had like these chills yesterday, but I'm on day 11 uh, after my onset of symptoms, so can I break, you know, break isolation? And it's like, uh, so you really wanna get objective measurements. And pulse oximetry at first was really hard to get because they were gone. There was just no supply last summer. Uh, and now we're seeing that uh, these agents are, or, I'm sorry, the uh, pulse oximeters are much more available. So you really want those tools on hand. Um, I'm a big believer in supportive care. Uh, there was a scare about use of NSAIDs among individuals with uh, COVID-19 that their infection may grow worse on it. That really has not been proven to be the case at all. So therefore, I, and it's one of the things you can do People are really suffering with this illness. So, you know, antipyretics, analgesics, it's one of the least things you can do. So go ahead and use those. And we're probably all familiar with the, uh, the rules for isolation and quarantine. And, uh, and just try to stick to those as, uh, as much as possible and put the person who is, you know, if you have to have one caregiver for a COVID-19 patient isolating at home, you know, make sure it's the one that has the least risk for complications of COVID-19. Maybe they already had the infection, which has happened more and more. There's always somebody around who has, who's actually had COVID-19 in the past or been vaccinated and is not, you know, older and more frail. So that's, that's just a advice I give their patients as well. But there is another way uh, using um, uh, these um, antibody-based therapies really has proven effective and has some real outcomes uh, that support their use. And the best way to think of these agents is think of them as antivirals. As Michael said, the earlier you get them on board, the more effective you can expect them to be. And so the first one I'm gonna talk about is banlimumab plus etacivimab. And this is a cocktail of two different monoclonal antibodies. All of these antibodies are uh, directed at the same uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, but they target different antigens, different epitopes on uh, that protein. And therefore they could be synergistic 
uh, when combined together. And so here we have two, and this got its emergency use authorization in February. Now, banalizumab as monotherapy got its emergency use authorization for COVID-19 in November. And what happened to that? Uh, well, don't worry, I'll, I'll get there, uh, but we don't give banlinivimab as monotherapy anymore. Uh, this has really replaced it on the market. And it's based on results from the BLAZE-1 trial. BLAZE was designed originally with an outcome of a virologic outcome. Uh, you know, who could clear uh, SARS-CoV-2 at day 11? Uh, placebo or uh, these monoclonal antibodies, which one was faster? And there really wasn't much of a difference, particularly with banlinivimab monotherapy. And that wasn't necessarily the best target either because patients with more mild and moderate illness are more likely to clear uh, SARS-CoV-2 by day 11. What they did find that was consistent across uh, Blaze was that there was a reduction in healthcare use. So there was a reduction in ED visits, reduction in hospitalizations associated with monoclonal antibody therapy. And that's a very patient-centered outcome. That, that really matters, particularly when we were trying to be good stewards of our healthcare resources and keep as many patients as possible out of the ED and out of the ICU. It also, if you look at the study, the characteristics of patients in the study, um, are more diverse in terms of race and ethnicity, a younger age group overall, and many with a risk factor, even patients with um, more mild to moderate illness, the majority in our practice in downtown Santa Ana have, um, have more than one risk factor uh, for complicated COVID-19. So this is really, it's effective among you know, more mild to moderate illness as outpatients among those uh, patients at higher risk for complications. This is um, another study looking at uh, Blaze, and uh, now we're looking at hospitalizations or death. And you can see that the high-risk patients in particular had the best benefits. So it's the ones who are at the highest risk for uh, complications. Those are the ones who do, who, do, who do the best on banalivimab plus etocivimab. And this was a lower dose. Lower dose was proven to be effective and pharmacologically kind of similar to a higher dose. And so when they did their dose uh, finding studies, this is the one they, uh, they settled on overall, the 700 and 1400 milligrams. Let's talk about the other monoclonal antibody that also has an EUA. Uh, this is castorivimab plus indevimab. And so it was, uh, it was approved for the EUA uh, based on a fairly large trial. Again, younger age group, diverse patient population, most individuals with a risk factor for complications, obesity being the most common. And again, a significant reduction in healthcare use. So medical visits through day 29 were, were improved. It makes sense that not only high-risk patients get more benefit uh, from monoclonal antibodies, but those who don't form a good immune response, so those who don't form their own antibodies, get more benefit from monoclonal antibodies. Overall, these um, infusions are associated with uh, a rate of uh, adverse events that are similar to placebo. Um, they, they do require IV infusions. They, the IV infusions last an hour, and then they have to be patients have to be monitored for at least an hour afterwards for any severe uh, adverse reaction. Uh, that was something I was really concerned with um, when the EUAs come out. Uh, when the EUAs reports came out, there were about a thousand patients they had in the safety protocol looking at those uh, severe adverse reactions. And there were four cases um, in those thousand patients, um, one of which required epinephrine, all of which uh, resolved um, very well without any uh, major complications to the patient. So it seems like they're extremely rare. And as monoclonal antibodies have been used progressively more around the United States, I just haven't seen any safety signals that there was some, you know, untoward or unheard of uh, previous complications. These, uh, these agents are very safe. Still, patients should be monitored for an hour after the infusion, and there has to be a crash card available, and people know how to use it at the same time. And that's some of the logistics that's hampered uh, the application of monoclonal antibodies.
But Castor River Map Plus and DevMap also has uh, newer data, very much larger trial, 4,500 individuals. Um, they're all they're all at high risk for complications. And not only was there a reduction in hospitalization or death in this cohort associated with the monoclonal antibody treatment, but there was also a reduction in symptoms. Uh, and so this in this uh, study, the uh, the review group that was uh, that was monitoring the study decided to end it uh, early because there was a clear advantage for casivirumab plus indevimab. So what happened to banlivimab? Um, this is what happened to banlivimab: is that the the variant, the rise of certain variants has has made it untenable as a treatment for uh, even mild to moderate COVID-19. So the B117 variant, which is also known as the UK variant, um, that one is still sensitive to banlivimab. Really, it is also the predominant uh, variant in the United States right now. But all of these other emerging uh, variants that contain this S484 uh, mutation, such as the B1351, the P1, and here in California, the B1429, um, all have a significant resistance to banlivimab um, as monotherapy. Combine banlivimab plus etacivimab, though, and you see a, a mild but not a clinically significant reduction in efficacy of uh, banlivimab plus etacivimab. So, so therefore, the combination uh, still counts. Castorimab plus indevimab has yet to be touched uh, by any of these variants, yet there is still continuing data coming out. Uh, and so we don't know what's next. And so this is something to bear in mind. Luckily, NIH and IDSA are watching the situation and, and you know and they give us feedback as to which ones uh, which monoclonal antibodies might be preferred in a given situation. Right now, um, either are fine. And and the key is don't I, I don't quibble too much as to which monoclonal antibody um, cocktail they're going to get. The key the best one for patients is the one they can get right now. So I really want to get patients ideally within 48 hours. And I've done it a number of times. Uh, I feel I feel very proud of myself that I did it, um, but I'm also proud of our patients, and I'm really proud of the of the teamwork that took across our institution to get those patients uh, treatment that that quickly. And I felt a lot better about their chances. You know, it starts with following the guidelines on the EUA, and so really these agents are just for age 12 and above, and uh, they're for patients at high risk of COVID-19, and it's only for outpatients. It's not for inpatients. As I said, you have to monitor the patients uh, during the infusion and afterwards and have uh, an emergency equipment available, essentially. This is the complicated criteria for, for those monoclonal antibodies. If you, if you think back to, uh, to Mr. Beals, um, you know, did he meet all these criteria? Well, he's 52 and he, he does have hypertension, but he's not 55 and has hypertension. He's a smoker, but we don't know if he has COPD or not. And so he's really somebody, he's on the fence to me because he has characteristics which would make me think of using monoclonal antibodies, but he doesn't necessarily fit all the criteria. You may be asking yourself, gee, what adolescents might need um, monoclonal antibodies down to age 12? Well, any, any uh, child with obesity is one, and the other major factor is asthma. So those are two common conditions I see in, in our adolescents and uh, I'm sure uh, adolescents nationwide, and those conditions by themselves in a 12, 12 to 17-year-old uh, should get them consideration for monoclonal antibodies. So you want to use them as an antiviral, get them on board as soon as possible. They are not for hospitalized patients. And here are the NIH and IDSA recommendations that I alluded to earlier that uh, really NIH says either cocktail is okay. IDSA says that as well, uh, but also it, we have to continue to watch uh, the response to these variants. And just remember, the more patients who get uh, vaccinated, 
the less transmission of COVID-19 there is overall drives the rate of variance down. I'm sure we're all aware of that and something we preach every day. Um, you may be thinking to yourself, because you're clever, um, gosh, we use antivirals as treatment, say, for influenza, but we also use them as prophylaxis uh, against influenza as well. Is there a potential role for monoclonal antibodies as prophylaxis? And that is, that is, there is actually some research to support that. With bamlanivimab, it was tested in uh, skilled uh, and assisted living facilities, skilled and skilled nursing facilities in particular. And um, what they found was that uh, it was effective as uh, monotherapy in the prevention of transmission of uh, COVID-19, both to residents and to staff as well. And, and these assisted living facilities obviously impacted, you know, much greater than any other type of living arrangement in terms of mortality associated with COVID-19. So that is important and it's a space to watch. Uh, with casarivimab plus indevimab, it was demonstrated to reduce household transmission of COVID-19, another important space to watch. Also, check out the way it was administered. It was not an IV infusion, it was administered subcutaneously. The more we can simplify the application of these monoclonal antibodies, I think there's gonna be better uptake because they are effective and they're well tolerated. All right, let's go back to Mr. Beals for a second. So he has a telehealth appointment with you two days after he declined monoclonal antibody infusion. What? After all that presentation, he, st he still said no. But yeah, that's that's how it goes sometimes. Um, he you know he's on the fence for uh, for those criteria. So let's see how he does. Oops, he developed fever and dyspnea. They are worse today. That's no good. He goes to our triage center where they report the following vital signs: his temps thirty nine, blood pressure high one fifty six over ninety two, pulse one hundred six, <laughs> respiration sixteen, but his pulse ox is ninety nine percent of room air. Uh, so, Michael, I'll pitch it back to you again. What do you think are next steps for him besides rechecking that pulse ox once or twice more? Yeah, I think um, now with this pulse ox and uh, the tachycardia, and just the fact that he's had this infection for a little bit and seems to be getting worse with the dyspnea, he really needs to be watched closely and he needs to be admitted. Um, I think this would be someone, someone that you know, everyone would be really uncomfortable just watching at home at this point in time because I think he's demonstrated that he's getting worse and he may continue to get worse as, you know, I think you pointed out with your graphic early on in the presentation about this kind of biphasic or bimodal illness that we see uh, with coronavirus infection. And so I would definitely um, admit this uh, patient to the hospital just for more treatment. Um, and this is where we have actually, I think a little bit more benefit in treatment uh, for our patients, or at least a little bit more in our armamentarium. Anything you would specifically do being his outpatient doc for him, Chuck. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's it's not just a chance to monitor him and, and feel more safe that, he's, that it, you know, if he needed oxygen support, if he needed intubation eventually, you know, that could be offered, you know, much more readily, obviously, in the hospital versus the home. But the fact is, he's moving to a place now where I can see that he uh, could benefit from additional treatments, which we also know are effective. And now we can, you know, intervene and, and you know, we know that some of these treatments actually prevent mortality. And so I think that that's yeah exactly where I go. So it's it's time to hand off to you, Michael, and, and put him in the hospital. All right. So um, now we'll move into talking about the management of hospitalized patients. So Mr. Beals, our our patient, has kind of demonstrated that he's uh, has a need for being hospitalized, and this is what, as Chuck pointed out, about. 10, 15% of the patients that we're seeing with coronavirus infection 
are in need of. Um, and luckily, we have a little bit more tools in our armamentarian armamentarium for helping patients out who get hospitalized. And the first approach that we have are the antivirals. So yes, we have the monoclonal antibodies, which act like antivirals, uh, in that they bind up the virus and help get rid of the virus. But we also have direct acting antivirals. And the major one that we have, and right now the only one that's FDA approved, is remdesivir. Um, remdesivir is a drug that was actually developed for SARS-1, MERS, uh, Ebola, and it works by inhibiting RNA replication, therefore lowering the amount of total virus that's out in the system that can infect more cells, cause more of an inflammatory response. And so what's the data for remdesivir? So probably the largest data set that we have comes from the uh, NIH adaptive COVID treatment trial um, and the part one, so the ACT-1 trial. This trial was a blinded randomized controlled trial that uh, in, enrolled about a thousand patients that were randomized to either remdesivir or to placebo. Uh, so we have the benefit of kind of placebo or uh, usual care for coronavirus uh, early in the pandemic. Uh, most of the patients um, had symptoms for around nine days. Um, the primary endpoint was time to recovery. The median time to recovery in the remdesivir arm was 10 days versus 15 days in the placebo arm. Um, this was statistically significant um, uh, benefit in uh, time to improvement and time to recovery for remdesivir. There was a trend towards a mortality benefit. Um, uh, at day 15, the mortality was 6.7% in remdesivir, 11.9% in placebo. By day 29, which was the end point of the study, uh, remdesivir mortality was 11.4%, placebo was 15.2%. So numerically better, but not statistically better, um, although close. Um, when we look at just graphically, we can see in the entire population there was benefit in remdesivir uh, for that cumulative uh, recovery um, compared to placebo. Um, this really demonstrated benefits in our patients who were receiving oxygen. Um, so our patient, Mr. Beals, he has a low pulse ox of 90%. If we repeated that, it was still 90, 91%, and he required oxygen, um, he would benefit from remdesivir at this point in time. Unfortunately, our patients who progressed a little bit further uh, to needing mechanical ventilation or other uh, uh, more advanced supportive measures didn't fare as well with remdesivir versus placebo, and there was really no benefit. Um, and this was somewhat of a disappointment early in the pandemic because that's what we were worried about with those very sick individuals. Um, Adverse events were pretty similar between the remdesivir and placebo, and those adverse events were uh, changes in uh, GFR creatinine, changes in hemoglobin and lymphocyte, respiratory failure, uh, fevers, hyperglycemia, a lot of the symptoms of just progressive uh, coronavirus. So it's really hard to know were they adverse events or were they related to progression of the disease. More severe adverse events, the three, uh, grade three and four, again, were very similar between, between remdesivir and placebo. We also now have some kind of non-clinical trial. I think the, you know, 
the kind of parlance that we use is the real world data instead of the controlled trial data uh, for remdesivir. This is a retrospective uh, comparative analysis uh, that looked at in a single center uh, that looked at around 2,400 patients who were admitted. Um, they chose about 285 patients uh, who received remdesivir, compared them to 285 controls. Um, a very diverse population, so about 21% were white, 33% black, 34% Latinx. So similar to what a lot of us are seeing in our hospital centers, um, and even more diverse than some of the clinical trials that have been done uh, in terms of randomized clinical trials. Uh, the time to clinical improvement was five days for remdesivir versus seven days for placebo. This was statistically significant. So again, demonstrating uh, improvement in clinical uh, symptoms um, in the remdesivir versus placebo. Um, mortality was 6% versus 13%. Again, not statistically significant, but numerically lower for remdesivir. When individuals were looked at that received steroids, there was a longer time to improvement and similar 28-day mortality. Uh, so a little bit different than what we've seen with uh, dexamethasone itself, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And when we look just graphically uh, here, uh, patients with severe disease, um, there was a benefit. Patients with mild to moderate disease, there was a benefit. Um, and then looking at the criteria for the ACT-1, um, there was a benefit. So again, you can see that there was um, consistency between ACT-1 and this uh, kind of real-world experience with uh, remdesivir. So the NH and the IDSA both recommend uh, remdesivir, especially in patients, or specifically in patients who uh, are hypoxic uh, with low oxygen saturation, so less than 94%, requiring supplemental oxygen. Uh, the NIH recommends using remdesivir through mechanical ventilation or ECMO, whereas the IDSA um, uh, recommends that you can use it for people on mechanical ventilation or ECMO. So that's a little bit of a difference between uh, the two recommendations. The next uh, therapy that we have to offer for patients who are admitted to the hospital that is like an antiviral is convalescent plasma. Um, the way that this might work is that it may neutralize the, the virus, uh, similar to what monoclonal antibodies do. It may control the hyperinflammatory state, uh, similar to IVIG or intravenous immunoglobulin that's used uh, for other infections um, that we don't have uh, very targeted antiviral therapies for. There may be immune modulation of the hypercoagulable state. Um, and there's also uh, an EUA and a look for uh, high titer plasma in hospitalized patients uh, versus uh, lower titer. Uh, multiple different studies that have been done uh, on convalescent plasma, very few are direct uh, randomized trials. A lot are uh, individuals getting convalescent plasma and then just looking at different points at which to analyze. Um, this is one study um, and a, a targeted group of patients from the Mayo Clinic experience of about 3,000 patients who received convalescent plasma. Um, these patients were um, all kind of comers. Uh, they had about 60% in the ICU, 33% on mechanical ventilation. Um, and specifically what this study looked at was 
low, medium, and high titer of the neutralizing antibodies in the convalescent plasma. And what they found was that individuals who got high titer um, had a lower mortality versus those who got low titer. Uh, higher titer recipients um, had a uh, lower rate of a need for mechanical ventilation versus those that got uh, low titer. And so there was some benefit or hint at benefit for high titer uh, uh, convalescent plasma. Um, this was somewhat mirrored by a randomized trial looking at early plasma for older adults, so looking at those that were 75 years or over. Um, this was a trial of 160 patients that were randomized to either uh, high titer convalescent plasma or uh, placebo. Um, the median age was about 77. Uh, the titer, uh, plasma was given within 72 hours of symptom onset, so pretty early in illness. And they specifically looked at uh, a high titer being uh, a median over 3,200. There were some that got a median titer less than 3,200, and they fell into the low titer group. When they looked at this group of patients, um, of placebo, uh, less than median or higher than median. What this group found was that there was a lower rate of progression of uh, disease to severe respiratory illness in those that received high titer plasma. So about 8% in the high titer plasma versus 31% in the placebo for 73% uh, relative uh, risk reduction, which was pretty good. Um, but then this brings up, I think, some of the newer data um, that's uh, uh, brought a lot of pause uh, um, with the use of convalescent plasma. So this is the recovery trial. Uh, again, the recovery trial, very large trial um, that's being done uh, in the UK um, that's randomizing individuals to multiple different therapies and multiple different arms. So a very, I think, well-designed multi-tier trial that's being done. Um, and what this trial looked at were individuals that got convalescent plasma um, versus um, usual care. So that's kind of the control group is just a usual care. In the recovery trial, they found no benefit um, when it came to all-cause mortality for individuals who received convalescent plasma. They also did a meta-analysis with this trial, uh, looking at other um, uh, studies on convalescent plasma, and again, found that there was no benefit to the convalescent plasma. Uh, for progression to need for mechanical ventilation, uh, recovery, uh, again, didn't show any benefit, as well as the meta-analysis for um, other trials that are out there. And so this really kind of changed our recommendations from earlier um, in last year, so in 2020 and then early in 2021, of the use of convalescent plasma, especially early in hospitalization or early after symptom onset, um, to really kind of changing our direction and recommending uh, either not having a sufficient uh, evidence for or against for the NIH um, or the IDSA actually suggesting against the use of convalescent plasma and really focusing on uh, individuals that are in studies to kind of study the benefit in the outpatient or ambulatory context uh, to study the benefit in individuals that may have more severe disease. So that's the antiviral. So the next group of therapies that we have 
uh, are the immune modulators. So these are the therapies that can actually modify the immune response. So as Chuck talked about, that kind of second phase when uh, the virus may not be playing much of a role anymore and the immune system is really taken over. Um, the treatment that we have for these individuals is dexamethasone. Um, this is something that uh, was looked at very early, looked at early in the recovery trial, um, and it was the hyperinflammatory arm of the recovery trial. Um, uh, and individuals were randomized to dexamethasone or standard of care. And what this trial showed was that for the overall population, there was a mortality benefit. 25% for the uh, usual care, 23% for the dexamethasone. For individuals that were ventilated, there was a mortality benefit from 41% in the uh, usual care to 29% in the uh, dexamethasone. For those on oxygen, there was also a mortality benefit, 26% versus 23%. So the first agent that really had mortality benefit um, and that we were really excited to kind of offer our patients who were sick they were on oxygen, uh, they were ventilated, and they had a therapy that would benefit them. One of the um, elements of this study that was kind of interesting and, um, uh, again, um, points towards maybe the virus playing a role more early in the illness is that those individuals not on oxygen had actually had higher mortality um, than the placebo when given uh, dexamethasone. And so it's really not recommended to give dexamethasone to patients that are not on oxygen because of this higher mortality. Um, so the conclusions from the recovery, again, first drug to show mortality benefit uh, on mechanical ventilation or oxygen, really not recommended for individuals on oxygen. Some of the questions about this trial were um, the fact that there's higher mortality in the recovery than what we generally see in the United States, but that still has had us recommend uh, dexamethasone for patients on oxygen. So if we go back to uh, Mr. Beals, um, being put on remdesivir, being put on dexamethasone, I think would be very appropriate for him once he's admitted to the hospital. Um, and Mr. Beals indeed does get remdesivir and dexamethasone. Over the next 72 hours, he has worsening hypoxemic respiratory failure. He's transferred to the ICU, started on BiPAP, and he's also noted to having uh, an increasing CRP. Um, and so now, what are the next steps for this individual, uh, for Mr. Beals, um, given his uh, progressed condition? Um, and this is where um, uh, a lot of our efforts have really been focused, and I'm sure all of you have seen patients that have progressed in this manner, um, where we are really looking for what are the next things that we can do? What is it that we can do uh, for this patient who's getting uh, sicker? Um, and uh, we want all the different tools that we have so that we can uh, get this patient through this. Uh, Chuck, I know you're primarily in the ambulatory setting, um, but um, I'm sure you've had patients that um, you've taken care of that have advanced or progressed in this manner. Um, and is there anything that you try to talk to families about uh, as patients are getting sicker in these situations? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really difficult and, um, and tragic uh, situation um, because, you know, we're really starting to get to that critical point and, and patients and their families are going to be scared. Uh, you know, it, it, at this point, you know, I'm not engaged in the active treatment decisions, to be right. honest. I, I can advise and help. And I would think about an IL-6 uh, receptor uh, inhibitor in this case, 
um, as, a, as a potential way to improve things. But it's also about maintaining lines of communication and, and being there because that's something that uh, that we were doing really we were doing really poorly, especially at the outset of the pandemic when we didn't have all our infection control protocols in place and and we weren't sure what we were dealing with. And so patients felt isolated. Uh, they felt that the healthcare providers who they saw were not well. They weren't really seeing them because they were behind these spacesuits. And so. Uh, therefore, there's a disconnect and, and patients were dying alone. Very terrible stuff, particularly for lower income and uh, people of color again. Uh, so that's something I pay attention to. And um, yeah, I certainly want to offer whatever um, resources I can just for the ongoing uh, support and giving true information to both patient and family through these kind of crises. Great. Yeah. And I, th I do think that's really important. And we, and we know early in the pandemic that was an issue communication. But I think you bring up the IL-6 receptor antagonist. And so this is where this patient um, would fall into the category of someone who would benefit from this. Um, bunch of studies that were done early on in the pandemic, um, looking at uh, IL-6 receptor antagonists as monotherapy, a lot of uh, conflicting data back and forth with benefit, with no benefit, with harm, with not as much harm. Um, and so we were really at a loss as to what to do. And there was not a lot of recommendations for what to do or how to utilize these therapies. Well, now there's two recent large trials um, that have been uh, presented. Uh, the remap cap um, is, was the first one that was presented, looking at the IL-6 receptor antagonist, tocilizumab, cerulimab versus control. And they looked at people that were on high flow oxygen that were quick uh, in the ICU, but less than a day. Many got dexamethasone, so over 80% uh, did. And the primary endpoint for this uh, study was combined mortality and days free, free of oxygen support. And what this trial showed was that tocilizumab had a 10-day improvement in organ-free support days compared to placebo, and the mortality was 28% in tocilizumab versus 36% in the control group. Similar outcomes were seen with cerulimab, but the numbers were much smaller. Um, but the tocilizumab showed a be uh, demonstrated benefit for mortality as well as organ uh, support-free days. The next study was, again, going back to the recovery. So this large uh, UK trial, um, this was a specific arm looking at uh, progressive inflammatory disease. So they looked at individuals who were progressing through their illness, who uh, had worsening oxygenation, oxygen saturation, as well as increasing CRPs. And they were randomized to a single dose of tocilizumab or just usual care. And again, what this trial uh, demonstrated was that the 28-day mortality had a 15% decrease um, uh, in the tocilizumab arm versus uh, the uh, usual care arm. The 28-day to discharge was a 22% increase so more uh, patients that were being discharged uh, from the hospital who received tocilizumab. And then progressive uh, progression to invasive ventilation, there was a 21% decrease in tocilizumab. And so again, really kind of started to change our thinking of these therapies. Um, this was uh, demonstrated kind of throughout all participants in multiple different uh, arms that were looked at. Interestingly enough, those who did not receive steroids did not fare as well as those who did. And so was it the steroids and the dexamethasone that was offering some benefit? And the recovery trial authors actually um, did a meta-analysis of all of the IL-6 receptor antagonists 
uh, uh, studies and actually found that when you add recovery, there is a benefit through this uh, meta-analysis. And this really changed what the NH and the IDSA were recommending. And they were recommending that tocilizumab and dexamethasone should be given in patients who are transferred to the ICU within 24 hours, require more invasive mechanical ventilation or non-invasive mechanical ventilation, and have rapidly uh, increasing oxygen needs and an elevate, uh, elevation in the CRP. And then the IDSA in hospitalized patients with severe critical COVID and markers of systemic uh, inflammation, they suggest tocilizumab as well. So kind of another uh, therapy for this hyperinflammatory state. And indeed, Mr. Beals would be a candidate for that. Um, so we'll end uh, our case with Mr. Beals. So Mr. Beals is admitted. He received supported care with supplemental oxygen. He received remdesivir, dexamethasone, tocilizumab. He improved over the next uh, three days of his hospital stay. He's being discharged home. So Chuck, what considerations do you have for discharge? Because I know this then is where you're going to play, I think, a very important role in what's going on with Mr. Beals. Yeah, I think it's important to set expectations because, um, you know, patients may think, well, I'm, I'm out of the hospital, I should feel 100% better, and they're not. They're still going to be in this for quite a while, particularly with regards to dyspnea and even hypoxia. So it may require oxygen going home. You should have a pulse oximeter going home. Uh, the, you know, so monitoring for other new signs and symptoms have to be very strict with uh, regards to uh, what his ED precautions are to go back to the emergency department. And it's my job to, you know, help I think uh, further that um, further those goals by contacting the patient via telehealth. So I'm going to uh, certainly try to set up an appointment within two days of discharge. So usually within 48 hours, and again maybe 48 hours after that until they really are truly recovered. Where the, you know my dyspnea is minimal. I don't need my oxygen anymore because I know what my oxygen saturation is. I feel a lot better. Yes, you know I, I don't know anybody who's recovered to the point where they go back to normal, whatever normal was for them. Uh, but they certainly feel um, that they're on the road to recovery. Maybe there's some fatigue. Maybe there's some mild shortness of breath. They're not able to do all the stuff they used to do, but they're able to get around their house and do uh, you know, at least some of their activities of daily living. And that's when you can start spacing uh, these visits out. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it is a struggle, and I think just helping patients understand it's going to be a slower recovery for the majority of patients, you know, helps them to just take the little wins they can get every day and make the most of them. A positive attitude helps uh, when it comes to COVID recovery. Um, and with that, I think we can probably get to some of our conclusions now. So monoclonal antibodies, uh, they do work. They reduce healthcare uh, use. Um, but they really are reserved for outpatients. These are your patients with mild to moderate illness, but they are at high risk for progressing uh, to severe disease or hospitalization. They have to be at least 12 years of age. Um, antiviral treatment with remdesivir, FDA approved. It's the, it is the FDA approved um, agent against COVID-19 uh, and is for hospitalized patients. Uh, they should be on oxygen, but not requiring mechanical ventilation or, or ECMO. Those who that's who benefits the most. And remember in Act One that the average reduction in symptoms associated with remdesivir versus placebo was five days. Um, the uh, antiviral antibody-based ther therapies, those are like convalescent plasma monoclonal antibodies. These are going to work uh, most effectively if they're, if they're initiated as soon as possible. Um, and dexamethasone as uh, as a drug that's established a lower mortality rates among hospitalized patients. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again to both of you. Um, our first question is, 
is there any value to antibody testing after vaccination? So a patient was negative for antibodies uh, two months after their yeah. second vaccine. Yeah, I, I can try to take that one. So the question is, is there, is there a benefit uh, to testing for antibodies after a vaccine? I, I don't think so. Um, not for the, you know, the vast majority of uh, folks who are maybe outside of a research protocol. Um, uh, because you know we, the vaccine efficacy was established in in solid clinical trials. It's it's also been confirmed among more population-based studies as we use the vaccines more broadly. I do expect though that individuals who um, have you know some kind of immunocompromise or just multiple chronic illnesses and they're older may not develop the same immunity that other uh, individuals might have, and that's something that we have to you know take into account. Um, certainly just regular precautions uh, for everybody against uh, COVID-19. We continue to use our public health measures um, as indicated. Uh, and and this will, it'll be interesting to see how the booster story plays out because we really don't know uh, where that will be and if there may be some populations we have to think about boosting earlier than others. There'll, there'll be more to come in this area. Perfect, thank you so much for that. And um, our second question here is, um, I'll, I'll toss this one to Dr. Angaroni, can you comment about the use of remdesivir along with dexamethasone? Is there data to support their use together? So um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and if you look at some of the trials, in, uh, you know, in particular the recovery trial, um, uh, there was potentially a slower time to recovery. Um, in the pragmatic trial um, that uh, I presented, there was a slower time to recovery when given steroids. I think we give remdesivir to patients early in the hospitalization because it's gonna have that antiviral effect. We give the steroids really targeting at the mortality benefit that, that it has. Um, and so that is why we tend to give it uh, both the remdesivir and dexamethasone to individuals who are on oxygen who are admitted to the hospital. Fantastic. Um, the next question is, can individuals who are vaccinated contribute convalescent plasma? So um, currently uh, not, because it hasn't been looked at in terms of what um, uh, type of antibody is specifically being developed, being um, uh, removed from the body uh, to develop that convalescent plasma. And many blood banks aren't even collecting convalescent plasma anymore due to some of the newer data that's coming out. And so right now I wouldn't recommend, you know, uh, telling a patient to go who's vaccinated to go donate plasma. It is an interesting concept, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I'm also not sure about the concentrations, you know, the type and concentrations of antibody after vaccination versus an acute infection may be different. And, um, you yeah, that's something to consider as well. Okay, great. Um, I will um, ask this again, Dr. Angaroni, it looks right up your alley. When should remdesivir be administered? Is it as soon as the patient is hospitalized? So it should be if the patient um, uh, qualifies for getting remdesivir, if they're hypoxic, if they're uh, potentially going to the ICU, but not, um, uh, those are the patients that I would target. And I would give it as soon as they're hospitalized if they're hypoxic. So our patient that we used in our example, he was hypoxic at the urgent care. If he was admitted, I would start the remdesivir right away. Um, if he wasn't hypoxic, I would wait to see how he uh, progressed over the next 24, 48 hours. 
Okay, fantastic. Um, I'm going to toss this one up. It could be, it could go either way. Um, can monoclonal antibodies be used in hospitalized patients uh, for a patient in the hospital sent in the hospital setting for something besides COVID? Well, they, they aren't recommended for hospitalized patients right now, but there are some uh, trials that are uh, looking at this issue. I think one of the principal problems is when do patients often come in the hospital? Certainly we see patients within 48 hours of the onset of COVID-19 illness who enter the hospital, but many of them come in on day 10 or 12, and it's really more that hyper-inflammatory response that's, uh, that it's an issue as opposed to the action of the virus itself at that point. And so we can expect that monoclonal antibodies, as we saw in early clinical trials, weren't that effective among inpatients. But there, there, there are ongoing trials um, underway to see if they may be uh, better at a subset of patients maybe who are admitted earlier, for example. Okay, great. Um, well, here's our final question. Is there any further information on inhaled remdesivir that can be used in outpatients uh, or inhaled steroids early with mild symptoms? Um, I think that's a great question. Um, and the, the question when it came up in the uh, inbox chat was, you know, really, you know, it sounds like we need more treatments early on in the course of illness. And yes, most definitely. Um, and that's what I think a lot of people are working on. Um, right now, the inhaled remdesivir is in the very early stages of being evaluated. And so um, it's not ready for kind of prime time. And uh, I'm sure they're going to start enrolling patients soon to try to see um, what the benefit is as you get more patients, just like in Act 1 when we had more patients. Um, the inhaled steroid story is somewhat interesting. Um, there has been uh, a couple of studies, again, uh, observational, um, uh, looking at uh, inhaled steroids, budesonide, I think was the big one. Um, and there seems to be a protective benefit. And so we do see a lot of patients being put on inhaled steroids. I don't think that that is inappropriate um, in the, if a patient is having a little bit of shortness of breath, but they're not sick enough to admit or they're, they're not hypoxic, there may be some benefit to that. Um, uh, out of all the other therapies that are being looked at, I think that one has potentially the best promise to, um, to show some benefit at keeping people out of the hospital. Okay, fantastic. Um, and I will add to, um, I heard of you, Destin, uh, we're actually on June 9th, Dr. Allwater will be doing a program called In the Pipeline, where he'll just kind of be oh. talking about all of the in-development uh, treatments. So uh, everybody keep your eyes peeled for a promotion for that in your inbox. Um, thank you again, Dr. Uh, Angaroni and Dr. Vega. Um, for our audience, if you'd like to claim credit, please click the claim credit button that will appear when the webcast ends. Uh, please be on the lookout for our 30-day survey, which you will receive through email. As always, your responses will help us develop further education. Uh, we thank you for joining us and have a great day. Dr. Angroni, Dr. Vega, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, everyone.